Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. While many Georgia school districts have settled on how students will return to school, COVID-19 infections are climbing, along with anxiety and confusion for parents, administrators, and students. How do I go to school, stay safe, get an education, and manage the, the associated stress that goes along with that. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, GPB joins Wellbeings, a national public media project to promote new conversations about youth mental health. We'll talk to experts in education and psychology about supporting students, parents, administrators, and teachers already stretched to the limits by months of disruption, isolation, and insecurity. Teachers teach, sure, but they're also human beings, mm. and people cannot give what they do not have. We'll talk about disparities in virtual education settings, managing anxieties in in-person learning, and deciding which hybrid model is best for your child. Youth Mental Health, are Georgia schools prepared? Coming up after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This back-to-school season is unlike any in our lifetimes. COVID-19 has put government and education leaders at odds in Georgia and across the country over whether in-person, virtual, or some hybrid of the two is the best and safest choice for educating students this coming school year. It is an urgent debate that has been settled in many districts. Still, the resulting anxiety and confusion for students, parents, and administrators compounds months of disruption, isolation, and insecurity. Earlier this week, our team collaborated with American Public Media's Call to Mind initiative, a national program to encourage new conversations about mental health. OST put together a panel to discuss one central question. Are Georgia schools prepared to support student mental health under these circumstances? Well, today we are broadcasting an edited version of the live public discussion. We invited questions from parents, teachers, school counselors, and concerned community members. So let's get right to it. I'm joined now by Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff. She's executive director of Voices for Georgia's Children. She's also a clinical psychologist with experience in school district administration. Erica, are you with us? Erica yes. Fenner-Sitkoff? Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. Also with us is Dr. Sarah Vincent. She's founder of the Loria Psych Group and associate clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at Morehouse School of Medicine. She's also on the board of the Georgia chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. Sarah, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for bringing attention to this. Well, I am glad to have this conversation with you all. Dr. Roy Reese is also with us. He's psychologist and director of behavioral health at Acoma Counseling and Consulting. He's associate professor and director of the Smart and Secure Children Parent Leadership Program at Morehouse School of Medicine. Roy, Dr. Reese, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So, we know thousands of school districts in a state that is already 47th out of 50th in access to mental health for the general population. Jill in Atlanta asks, what were schools doing before the pandemic to support mental health? Erica, I wonder if I could put that to you. Give us a picture of youth mental health support before COVID-19. Sure. To start, we have more than 180 school districts in our state. And along with that comes a wide variety of, of supports and services. 
Some schools have partnered with community-based providers to implement more comprehensive school-based services. Other school districts have trained their teachers and their counselors in order to identify needs early and refer them to services outside of the school setting. And some, quite honestly, don't have much in the way of supports at all. They're really at the very beginning of this and in recognizing the need and developing partnerships and putting services in place. Sarah, we know that job loss, housing, food insecurity can trigger depression and anxiety in adults. How did these COVID-19 associated stressors for parents and caregivers affect students? So kids do as well as the families and the societies they're in often. Um, They're not separate entities and uh, sometimes they can be the canary in the coal mine uh, where they may be more outwardly symptomatic. uh, But when you look at the family stressors and the things that the family's going through, it may be that they're the one who's most overtly affected. uh, But once you start asking questions, you find out that the whole family unit is stressed. So, Roy, I know you're still speaking with patients. How is the stress of COVID-19 manifesting in students physically, mentally, emotionally? And and what kind of reactions are you seeing from them? So one of the things that we've seen is that we have seen a significant influx of patients presenting with increased anxiety symptoms and depression symptoms. And we're seeing this among young people. I think that one of the things that happened is that as we were talking about the impact of COVID with respect to morbidity and mortality, that one of the morbidities that we've not paid close attention to is as it relates to mental illness. And a lot of young people um, are struggling now on the positive side that a number of these young people are reaching out to their parents and saying, hey, I need help. Um, But unfortunately, we know that a number of other young people are struggling in silence. And so some of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing significant uh, impairments in sleep. We're seeing disruptions in diet. We're seeing increased isolation, uh, not just as a function of being isolated, but also as a function of the ways in which the anxiety and the depression is showing up in the lives Mm -hmm. of young people. Yeah, we've got a number of questions here about isolation and its effects. Elizabeth from Adairsville, Gabby, both ask about the impact on mental health. And maybe start with you, Erica. How does this affect different age groups? So for very young kids, they don't have necessarily the verbal skills and all of the tools to be able to express themselves. So you might see um, young children who have been potty trained regressing some or acting out their behavior in ways, becoming more aggressive. Um, that you hadn't seen in a, in a long time, having more tantrums. And in, and in school-age kids, really, any change in the way that they typically react is a signal for parents to probe a little bit more. So if you have an extrovert and a child who likes to be around other people and they're not able to do that now and you see them withdrawing, not coming out from their room, that's a signal and a sign All of that is pretty much to be expected. There's a major change in their environment and their structure and their their routine that you're going to see some changes in their behavior. But um, really, when you just see them acting dramatically differently is, is a signal to probe further. Nuri asks, what are the best strategies to use with middle school students? Sometimes they're shy about their feelings, especially boys. I'm a mother and an educator. Roy, as somebody who's treating kids of this age, what do you think about Nuri's question for specifically middle school kids? So the part of the question that I I responded to is the question about boys. Um, and I think that there are differences in, way, in the ways in which anxiety and other mood disorders, other disruptive challenges uh, manifest in young people, but there are also gender differences. And so sometimes the externalizing behaviors that we see in boys and, and male adolescents 
um, sometimes get confused as uh, disruptive behavior versus being understood that they may indicate this person is struggling with a mood disorder, um, anxiety, or, or depression. And the ways in which we understand boys and girls that needs to reflect that. And so we want to be careful. And, and one of the things we really want to support parents doing is that when they're not sure to ask questions, um, oftentimes the first line of defense is the primary care pediatrician. Um, hey, this is going on with my son or with my daughter. I'm not really sure uh, what's, what's happening here. And, and to kind of do some problem solving. And we want those PCPs to be asking questions. Hey, how are they doing with respect to their adjustment as it relates to the pandemic? Um, not being able to interact with their peers, being isolated at home? Do they have concerns as they think about the return to school? And and frankly, we also want to think about how's the family doing? Mm -hmm. How are you managing these concerns? Because that piece about as the parents go, so go their kids is a very real thing. Sarah Vincent, uh, the virus is now affecting more people in their teens and 20s, especially in the South and the West of the United States. This is a highly social cohort, but at the same time, their ability to make risk calculations is still very much in development. So, uh, so can you address that, some of the concerns of that age group? Yeah, and so as we see this affect younger and younger people, you know, there's growing concern about what this is going to do physically, uh, while we're still trying to balance the drawback of having people isolated at this really social time. And so one of the things that I've encouraged families that I work with to do is be really intentional about scheduling time and scheduling activities in a safe way. Um, And that can be socially distant walks or meetups or even scheduling time to do FaceTime uh, because they do need that social interaction and we don't want to deprive people of that, but we need to do it in a way that sort of takes into account the bigger picture. My guests are Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff, Dr. Roy Reese, and Dr. Sarah Vinson. We're talking about supporting youth mental health. Are Georgia schools ready? It's a special edition of On Second Thought produced by GPB and Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. So let's look at students, what's going on this year. Across the country, some districts do report high truancy rate and students actually falling off the radar since classrooms went virtual. Erica, do you have ideas of numbers here in Georgia of students who have just not logged on or have gone missing uh, since virtual learning began? No, unfortunately, we don't have a statewide number for that. And I encourage our state to collect that data so that we can get a much better handle on that as school begins and be able to deploy resources as needed. We have had some individual reports from conversations we've had with some schools that have said upwards of 60% of their kids they haven't had contact with or regular contact with since March. And if you see that as a leading indicator to what's happening across the state, and I think it is for many families who don't have reliable or any internet access, or who are managing really overwhelming circumstances with regard to parental employment and child lack of childcare, we're going to see a lot of that over the next month as schools reopen. And it's more critical than ever that we have an all-hands-on-deck approach to this, that we look at every state agency and all the resources in our communities from after-school programs to child care centers, to pediatricians, that we really develop a community-wide collaboration to do well checks on families. 
So I've got a question here from uh, an anonymous attendee who says in small towns in Georgia with a UGA presence, the communities are going to receive an influx of tw- 10 to 20,000 students at the same time public school resumes. Who's coordinating the public health risk of this perfect storm? You know, this is a place in many parts of Georgia, small hospitals, minimal public health presence, Valdosta, Statesboro, that kind of place. So, so maybe we can lift this question to who is coordinating this for students? We're getting messages from the Department of Education in Georgia, individual school districts, locals. There's all sorts of confusion and waffling about that. How does that kind of confusion affect students? Significantly. I mean, children thrive on stability, and we just have none of that right now. I mean, it's changing on a week-to-week Um, basis. We had some school districts originally come out with plans that said, we're giving families a choice, virtual in person. And then within two weeks, that's changed to 100% virtual. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence in young people about being able to predict what's going to come next in a fundamental aspect of their daily lives. To the question of of who's coordinating it, it really looks different in, in each community. Every school district makes their own decision. We did get a statement from the the Georgia Department of Education. They have a mental health and wellness working group composed of staff, district and school support services, counseling, social work staff, parent representatives, nonprofit partners. So they've created some guidance for that. We will post a link to that on our page. Um, But I'm wondering, Sarah Vincent, for you, what are you seeing here, this level of coordination between schools? And what does that mean for, for students who are especially somebody who is really anxious about contracting the virus or infecting somebody else? Actually, one of the conversations I had with one of my patients today was how anxiety-provoking it feels to not have faith in the people in charge and to not know sort of how they're making decisions or feel as if they're communicating with you clearly. Mm. Um, And so I think something that could be done from the top down is uh, just more communication, even if we're not exactly sure what's going to happen, uh, to let people know sort of how we're thinking, what we're taking into account, um, and where things are. But it certainly is really, really difficult for people. Uh, Just this transition back to school can be anxiety provoking in and of itself. And now Mm -hmm. you have COVID and all these things on top of it. And particularly for students who are heading into their senior years or heading into some other big transition point, this has caused a lot of worry and fear. Roy, what are you hearing from your clients who are feeling anxious about going back to school? Well, I I think that Sarah and Erica have kind of captured it. And I think that one of the things that we frankly have not done is to acknowledge what we don't know. None of us in our lifetime have experienced a pandemic of this magnitude that's impacted us as broadly as this has. And so I think one of the things that's important is to say, we're figuring it out as we go. I think people do well uh, with information even if that information is hard to digest. And so as people deal with the anxiety of like, how do I send my kid, or if I'm the kid, how do I go to school, stay safe, get an education, and manage the associated stress that goes along with that? So I think it's important to to acknowledge what we don't know, champion what we do know in terms of what we have confidence in, and says, we're gonna figure this out together because we're all in this together. I think that's a really important message. 
We're going to take a quick break from this special episode of On Second Thought on supporting youth mental health. We'll be back with more on how pre-existing social disparities factor into back-to-school readiness for Georgia students and for their mental and emotional well-being. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jumping back into our live panel discussion from earlier this week, supporting youth mental health, are Georgia schools ready? We spoke with Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff, Executive Director of Voices for Georgia's Children. Dr. Sarah Vinson, founder of the Lorio Psych Group and Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at Morehouse School of Medicine. And Dr. Roy Reese, Psychologist and Director of Behavioral Health at Acoma Counseling and consulting. Even before the pandemic, access to mental health care and resources for youth was a concern in Georgia and across the nation. We began our live conversation with clips from Ken Burns' upcoming documentary on youth mental health called Hiding in Plain Sight. The feeling is like walking through, um, it's like being pulled down, being pulled into like quicksand. It affects my daily life all day, every day. To go to school, you know, you put on a face, a facade, you're happy, you're bubbly, and then you eat lunch alone in the bathroom. The pandemic compounds existing stressors and has pushed well-being to the limit over the last five months, and providers predict things will get worse as students transition back to school. One statistic that's cause for concern, reports of child abuse have gone down by half since the start of shelter-in-place orders, likely because teachers, counselors, and other mandated reporters are not in contact with kids. I asked Dr. Roy Reese what he makes of that and how we're keeping an eye on kids in virtual learning environments. I think we have to recognize that whether you're going back virtually or some combination of virtual and in-person, parents were not trained, most of us are parents were not trained as, as educators. I've been a professor half my life and I feel very stressed and challenged around my, my daughters and how to support them, you know, with respect to their educational goals. But with regard to how we support teachers, you know, what is the professional development workshop that um, they're getting or support they're getting for everything from how we implement IEPs and 504 plans virtually to how we identify problems that otherwise if that student was in the classroom, we would be able to identify. Well, we do have a number of questions about IEPs and how they're being handled. I don't know, uh, Sarah or uh, Erica, do you have any ideas or you want to pick up on that thought? Yeah, so the the abuse piece You know, Erica mentioned that in some school districts, up to 60% of students hadn't even logged on. That's probably a higher risk population Mm -hmm. to start with. So a lot of the kids who aren't showing up are maybe the ones where there may be more going on in the household, where there's not as much uh, reliability in terms of their caregivers or access. The reality is a lot of those people are completely out of teacher's reach right now. When it comes to IEPs, my observation this past semester is that for the most part, they just were not followed or honored. Mm -hmm. Um, And so students got frustrated. Uh, They knew that their grade wasn't going to get worse because most school districts said you can get better, but you're not going to go down. And they just checked out. And so that is something that we know children are going to need. And it is going to be particularly challenging to do in a virtual setting. 
So th- this is an interesting thing that the Department of Education has said. This is they have requested for this year a waiver from the federal government of standardizing testing and accountability requirements for the 2021 school year, knowing that students will be dealing with the ongoing effects of global crisis, believing the school's focus belongs on making it through the challenge together, not on the pressure of a high stakes test. Do you think that there might be a possibility that they will also ask for waivers from honoring IEPs at this time? I wouldn't be surprised, Uh, but I hope that families and communities really lobby to keep those protections in place because they're there for a reason. No one gets an IEP easily. It is quite a process. So if someone has it, it's because there's a need and you want that need to get met. And what I'm concerned about is that the kids who already were on the wrong side of the educational divide um, have fallen further back in these past few months. And if we don't lobby for them to have the things that we know they need, uh, it's only going to become a greater disparity. Well, and we're looking at now $950 million cut from the Quality Basic Education Program in FY 2021. Of course, falling tax revenues and down economy is blamed for the the budget passing and reductions in it. Erica, maybe to you, how is this going to affect funding for school counselors? And where does that put the ratio that legislators were initially aiming for? Um, It affects it. I mean, not only were um, those cuts to education, there were also cuts to the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. So the after-school clubhouse houses, the Project Apex program, really these budget cuts were felt everywhere. And with regard to the, the point made about the abuse and neglect numbers, right now the Department of Education is partnering with Prevent Child Abuse Georgia, um, Georgia Center for Child Advocacy, to do some training with educators across the state of how to pick up on cues. We're encouraging them to think of ways that children can communicate through their virtual platforms directly with the school counseling office, because it used to be they could pop by the office or fill out a form, that's no longer available. So how can we leverage technology where it's available for students to be able to submit requests or to flag that they're having an issue and they and they need some help? Um, and then also to, to think about, again, those partnerships. Individual school districts are not going to be able to respond to this growing need. So I just emphasize now more than ever that those partnerships between the different state agencies beyond Department of Education um, with their local mental health community providers, their pediatricians, their food banks, um, to be able to get those needs met for families and creating a direct line for students to be able to flag that they need those services versus having to go through their parents or their parents to have to go through extra steps to try and access them. We're talking about supporting youth mental health and asking, are Georgia schools ready? This is a special edition of On Second Thought produced by GPB and Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. My guests are Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff, Dr. Roy Reese, and Dr. Sarah Vinson. Yeah, so this this is a question that is really on people's minds. A lot of people from across Georgia are asking about how these disparities are playing into mental health outcomes for, for youth, whether that's in rural, rural urban communities that divide refugee and immigrant populations, children with special needs, socioeconomic inequities, LGBTQ or trans students, uh, students dealing with racial trauma. Many, many of these things have been brought up. How about with you, Roy? Do you want to pick up on some of the how 
how these disparities are actually changing the way that we're thinking about whether or not there should be some real serious assessment about how to educate kids either online, in person, or the hybrid model. So I'm going to take a step back. Thank you. That's, that's an excellent and challenging question. We can't give school systems a pass on educating kids. And I think it's important, this idea of us, hey, let's just get past or get through the school year, um, that that's part of where this discussion around disparities start. So in under-resourced, underperforming schools, pre-pandemic, right? If we say, you know what, we're really just, just we're trying to get through this school year. There's been a lot of discussion that's talking about how kids are going to fall behind academically or how they've already fallen behind academically. And we know that has all kinds of implications for future orientation, the world of work, underemployment, undereducation, et cetera. And, and, and so we have to create a healthy, workable tension between the challenge that school systems are facing and the demands that parents understandably should be making that their kids both be safe and get a quality education. I think that when we move into the space of understanding these disparities, so this gets into kind of some of the adult issues, and particularly when we start thinking about essential workers. And so black and brown communities have been disproportionately impacted both with regard to morbidity and mortality, um, but it's gonna be those parents who are gonna be more, more likely and those parents coming from poor communities who are gonna to have to go to work. So if you go to a school system that's doing virtual education, who's at home helping uh, that student with, with, with their studies? Uh, what kinds of tensions does that create um, in the home? What does that mean for the kids' sense of self? So that maybe in a year when we're back some sense of relative norm, how far behind is that student or those students? And I think we need to lift those pieces up that if we're really talking about equity, both in health and educational outcomes, that we have to address how we're going to support both parents as they manage this piece, students, um, and making sure they get what they need so that these disparities don't become more pronounced. Sarah, I'm going to go ahead. Oh, I was just going to underscore what Roy said that, you know, historically, particularly with black and brown children, we have taken a punitive approach versus a restorative and nurturing approach. Mm -hmm. And now more than ever, when we debate what does attendance look like, you know, historically, it's been punitive when kids don't show up to school and they're truant versus asking the underlying questions as to why that's happening and what families need in order to help their kids engage. And so now more than ever, we have a moment to meet if we are going to be nurturing and supportive of families and all come together to eradicate the inequities that have long existed or continue to move forward down the same path of being putative um, when kids are struggling to engage for the obvious reasons they are struggling to engage for all the things that we've been talking about. Well, the question is, does, does that get seen in the same way in a virtual environment uh, or some sort of hybrid when contact with the students is somewhat limited. Maybe to you, Sarah, do you have a sense of which learning option, you know, online, in-person, hybrid, most exacerbates disparities? So I think in terms of which may most exacerbate it, for some kids and families that don't have the resources or that are particularly chaotic, school is really their refuge. Um, and so by them not being able to go to this place uh, for so many of their waking hours, it really is a significant loss for them. And 
just to echo what Roy and Erica said about not taking a punitive approach to this, this applies to the families and in terms of how we're thinking about DFAC's involvement, but also uh, children who may have DJJ or Department of Juvenile Justice involvement that sometimes mm-hmm. children may be in violation of their plan if they're not going to school or they're not passing or they're not getting good grades. And so something that we really need to think about is school judicial partnerships um, and making sure we're not penalizing kids from a juvenile justice standpoint uh, because their needs aren't being met. Um, And this is a situation where we really have to think about the difference between equal and equity and understand that it's entirely predictable uh, which kids at which schools are going to have more of these issues. If you're at a school that has 99% free lunch versus 0.02% free lunch, we know that those schools are going to need more help. So we don't have to sit around and wait. We already know where the under-resourced schools and communities are. And I think if at all possible, we should be proactive about putting additional resources in place from the beginning, understanding they're going to need extra. Right. So this is a much larger structural problem, but a a number of people are asking about how they can support. You know, uh, Julie wants to know how are teachers being equipped with social emotional learning tools to engage kids to make virtual learning more interesting to them? You know, the the resource that you mentioned, Virginia, from the Department of Education, the Wellness Mm -hmm. uh, Restart Workgroup, has gathered a number of resources of strategies that school districts are implementing, and they range from um, Wellness Fridays to creating that button that kids can click on to reach the school counselor to additional training um, of their teachers in order to to do, for example, a check-in and check-out at the beginning of each class, how everyone is doing at the beginning, how everyone's doing at the end, and be able to recognize and flag and do individual follow-up. There is a a pretty wide range of different resources that school districts can tap into to support their teachers in supporting their their children and families. Um, So that's a place to start to look at some options and be able to ask your school district. And as a parent, simply asking the question, what are you doing? Demonstrating that um, with your voice that this is important to me and to our community. And so I'm asking the question, what are you doing? Not are you doing something, but what are you doing? You need Mm -hmm. to be doing something and what is it? I don't want to lose Sarah's point, however, because I feel like uh, the disparities are such a huge issue in education, as we know, uh, across Georgia. And, and I've heard accounts from people trying to talk to their children about why so many more black and brown people are getting COVID or are talking about the murder of George Floyd and why people are marching in the streets. Um, Sarah, maybe over to you, thoughts on how carrying that mental and emotional burden of racial justice and the racial justice movement impacts mental health. We'll start with you. So we know that racism has negative impacts on mental health. It is a social determinant of health and of mental health. And what we're seeing both when it comes to COVID and when it comes to the deaths of George Floyd and here in Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery, um, that our society doesn't value and protect Black lives in the way um, that it values and protects others. And this isn't something that is new to Black children. I think it has been raised in the national conversation in a different way. Uh, But this is something that they deal with and that they contend with whether they have a name for it or not. You know, these kids who are living in these under-resourced communities and these hyper-segregated schools, they are dealing with the ramifications of things like redlining that are the 
direct results of structural racism. And COVID, you know, the, the disproportionate impact was something we all predicted would come because of greater exposure, but also the pre-existing problems we have around access in this country uh, that are often around geography and income, uh, which we know have racialized components to them. Yeah, I want to ask about the geography a little bit. We know that this is a big issue where people live, whether or not they have internet access, which, of course, if they're doing virtual learning programs, there are more uh, southwest and southeast Georgia communities who are choosing to do in-person learning or some hybrid. And those are often areas, but not exclusively most affected by lack of internet penetration. I'm also wondering about, you know, what happens in school districts where virtual learning is not an option for students without internet. In Oglethorpe County, east of Athens, Superintendent Beverly Levine said that after the schools went virtual, they were able to put a device in every single kid's hands, but that did not solve the problem because they didn't actually have access to the internet. So, so Erica, you know, putting a device in everyone's hand should help. There are a lot of families with many kids and they may not all have their own devices. But is there any larger structural solution being proposed for internet connectivity, especially for kids at this time? You know, this pandemic has magnified these gaps and fragility in our systems that have long existed. Um, the disparities that have long existed in resources and opportunity, and broadband is just one of them. Um, what systemically, with regard to broadband, they are now publishing and bringing to light where those gaps exist, but it's going to take a tremendous amount of resources to really comprehensively think about what is needed to fully have equity and access. And broadband is a piece of it. But you also mentioned everybody having a device so that mm -hmm. all children are able to log in versus getting, again, dinged or having a, a punitive outcome because they hadn't logged in. Um, so really thinking through all of the different aspects of supports that families need and broadband being a very big piece of that, necessary but not sufficient to fully meet the access demands. We'll be back with more of our public discussion from earlier this week on supporting youth mental health. Are Georgia schools ready? Produced in collaboration with American Public Media's Call to Mind initiative. After the break, the importance of trauma-informed care and centering student voices. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with more of On Second Thought from GPB, and a special edition today featuring a live panel discussion from earlier this week. We called the event Supporting Youth Mental Health, Are Georgia Schools Ready? with Dr. Sarah Vinson, founder of the Lorio Psych Group. She's also on the board of the Georgia chapter of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Dr. Roy Reese, psychologist and associate professor and director of the Smart and Secure Children Parent Leadership Program at Morehouse School of Medicine. And Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff, Executive Director of Voices for Georgia's Children. We've been hearing from our panel throughout this hour about their concerns, perspectives, and hopes as Georgia and the nation heads into a new academic year during an already turbulent time. With as many as 70% of Georgia children falling somewhere on the scale of pre-existing traumas, I asked Erica about the importance of trauma-informed care and if this crisis is creating trauma for children. I think it is absolutely creating additional trauma, whether it being exacerbating trauma that already existed because of lack of meeting basic needs, um, because of violence that they were exposed to before that are exacerbated now due to the systemic and structural 
impact of racism that Sarah and Roy talked about as well. All of that existed before. All of that has been exacerbated and maximized during the pandemic. And now we have more children are enduring trauma than didn't before because of the economic impact. Um, Parents who have lost their job, children that are going without food that, that have never experienced that before, and homelessness expected to be on the rise. In terms of trauma-informed care, I mean, there is a growing movement to have both mental health professionals as well as educators, really anyone after school providers working with youth to be trained in trauma-informed. We've talked some about what are kids' behaviors really telling us? They could be telling us a myriad of things. And historically, you know, people's first inclination is to make it about that child. There's something wrong with that child versus what asking the question of what happened to them. Um, I think that we've made the assumption that mental health and behavioral health specialists automatically get that training, and that isn't the case. Really, everybody needs a good dose of how to be trauma-informed in their responsiveness and awareness, and that they're thinking about trauma comprehensively to include the systemic and structural racism that children experience, the trauma they experience of not getting their basic needs met, and how that manifests in their behavior. Right. We have a lot of questions about um, traumatic situations for refugee immigrant communities, for example, you know, isolated from families abroad, uh, elevated levels oftentimes of previous trauma, language barriers to to uh, to get access to information. Got a question here. As our community grows in diversity, is it important to be culturally responsive? How can we help parents from other countries overcome stigma of mental health? This is from a mom. So I think a lot of people are asking questions like, how can we support, you know, even if they're not a member of those communities, how can we support children in foster care? So if in your in your answer, you could maybe focus it a little bit on how to help support. I don't know. Sarah, Roy, sure. who wants to pick this up? So one of the things when it comes to helping communities that you may not be part of um, is respecting who knows that community, who has knowledge of it, and being humble in offering your help. Um, So not assuming that you know what people need or how they need it, uh, but being really intentional about engaging who are the leaders, um, who are the people in that community that folks already go to, and partnering with those people um, and not going in, you know, thinking that you have your cape and you're going to go help uh, this group of, of folks, but realizing that they already have strengths, they already have resources. Um, And the best thing that you can do is try to support those things that are in place. The other thing I'll say too is, you know, certainly to those who are in a position of leadership, sometimes we can get into this uh, pattern of having like our diversity day once a year or our cultural day once a year. And really when it comes to addressing these things that are so complex, a day of talks isn't really going to do it. It really has to be a matter of looking at how your school is serving certain segments. So for instance, if you notice that no one from uh, refugee or immigrant communities is engaging with your school counselors, then why is that? What do we need to do in terms of outreach? What is it about how we operate? Are people afraid of being reported to ICE if they come talk to us? Asking those questions about how you're set up and how your system may actually be part of perpetuating those issues. And I would I would encourage us to make sure for parents that are asking us what they could do, include youth in this dialogue. Kids talk to other kids mm-hmm. and kids can be a tremendous resource to one another. And the more we can equip our kids to recognize their own humility and ask their friends questions or to be inclusive and open to their peers, 
um, can go a long way because they really look to each other, um, particularly in times of crisis for that support. And they're looking to each other right now. Parents and students should be asking their school district leadership how they are including the, the voice of students. A lot of school districts are having town halls to talk to parents. Well, town halls to talk to students and solicit feedback from them about what they need, asking them what they need um, and what they'd like to see. I want to make sure we talk about teachers somewhat before we run out of time here. A number of teachers have protested. Some have resigned when a, a couple of weeks ago when the federal threat of, of in-person classes was a little bit more severe. It's now back backed off in that somewhat. I know Voices of Georgia's Children has also a reverse course on that somewhat. So how is the mindset or stress of teachers? How is that affecting students in the classroom? Sarah, do you want to do you want to answer that? Sure. So teachers teach, sure, but they're also human beings and people cannot give what they do not have. And so if they don't feel a sense of power or a sense of agency, it's going to be really hard for them to reinforce that in the children that they're trying to teach and support through these really difficult times. Um, And I really do see teachers as an extension of that family unit we were talking about. Uh, When you think about the important adults in a child's life, especially those kids who are with that teacher all day um, in elementary school, that's a really significant adult for them. And getting back to some of those, you know, equity issues that we raised earlier, uh, we do know that bias plays a role in how kids are disciplined and to what degree they're disciplined. And there are studies that show that when people aren't at their best, when they are stressed, they are more likely to sort of act on those biases, whether Mm -hmm. it's intentional or not. And so in thinking about student health and mental well-being, we absolutely have to think about teachers because they are part of that core group of people who the children are going to reflect off of. My guests are Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff, Dr. Roy Reese, and Dr. Sarah Vinson. We're talking about supporting youth mental health. Are Georgia schools ready? Erica, I know Voices held a a panel discussion on the state of school-based mental health with providers across the state. Was that counselors or did you hear from teachers as well? Um, Those were counselors that partner with school districts to provide comprehensive school-based mental health in the schools. We also had Department of Education um, and Department of Developmental Disabilities on that panel as well. So how about them? I mean, the number of them, from what I read, are volunteering, delivering food and lunches to families and actively helping to manage food and housing and security, connecting their students to the resources that they need. Is there, you know, what is the risk of burnout, not just for teachers, but also for counselors who are in that position? The risk is great for everyone. As we've been leading discussions with regard to how to support youth, just as Sarah was saying, we're also encouraging how do you support teachers? There are hotlines for parents and and kids to call, creating some hotlines for teachers to be able to get some support. Um, Secondary trauma is a real thing. Um, When you are taking on the well-being of others, you often put yourself last. Um, And so they are working around the clock to support children and families and not always putting their own oxygen mask on and making sure that we have those support systems readily available for those providers, which include mental health providers and teachers, all of the above. So we know Georgia did not have a strong record of supporting student mental health pre-COVID. Some resources going towards there. Now a lot of money cut back from the budget, the school budget and the Department of Health and Human Services. Now further strained, which feels like the burden is somewhat shifting to teachers 
to parents, to families, to students. How about communities? Are there community models that you have seen that have been especially effective at helping students connect with mental health resources or supporting wellness? So the exemplars are, are too far and few between, but I think there also exists the opportunity to create these systems of care in which community-based behavioral health services can be extended in, in, in their partnerships. One of the things that we know in Georgia is that there is an inadequacy with regard to the availability of adequate numbers of providers to do this work. Um, and so we're at this place where we have a, a, a more pronounced need among young people and their families. And, and, and so that part of the conversation has to be how we engage those community providers to say, hey, we have a demonstrated need here. It is not reasonable to think that schools have the resources pre-pandemic or now to respond to the breadth and magnitude of need that we know that exists in the school mental health space. You know, the, one of the things I thought about the question around teachers and their struggle is that many of those teachers are also parents. And, and so mm-hmm. they're thinking about not only how they support their students, but you know, how they take care of their own kids, what concerns they have around risk mitigation coming back into their own homes. And so we need to be thinking in comprehensive and inclusive ways about how we provide support to folks. You know, the Georgia Academy um, of Pediatrics put out a toolkit of how pediatricians can reach out to their school districts and develop partnerships. It would be really awesome to see um, something similar come out from the mental health associations of how to Roy's point to help give a roadmap for local community providers of how they can engage and school districts can engage with them as well. Sarah, did you have something to add there? Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to say that families are on their own, um, but I think it is important to acknowledge that, uh, as you said, a lot of it is going to fall with them. And a lot of times when we think about uh, disparities or not having enough resources we in the supply and demand, we think about trying to supply more mental health services. Uh, but there's also a piece that we can do in terms of decreasing the demand. And yes, it is a time of increased stress and increased trauma, uh, but there are also things that families have within their control and in their power uh, to be proactive that we know are protective for mental well-being. So simple things like sleep, and movement and exercise, um, having quality time together. So thinking about prevention and mental health promotion as a piece of this as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was Erica, I'm sorry, (laughs) it was so long ago now, who said something about children craving stability. But an important life lesson, of course, is that change and adapting That is the only constant. I think you referred to this earlier, Sarah. So part of education to be helping to build resilience. How could this crisis be discussed with children in a way that might reinforce those kind of skills for managing difficult transitions in life? Well, we want to help them be resilient, but we also want to acknowledge the reality of what they're experiencing. So we want them to have the words uh, to describe their feelings, and we also want to be validating. Uh, One of the things that has been uh, interesting in just working with my patients over the past few weeks is 
how they are comforted by hearing that this is hard for everybody. Um, and one of them even asked, well, is it hard for you? And I'm like, yes, it's hard for me too. Um, and so one of the ways that we can uh, think about resilience is helping people think about the ways where they do have agency, where they do have a choice, where what they are uh, saying or doing does matter. Um, so things like wearing their mask and helping everybody else stay safe, uh, really framing it as this is you doing your part uh, to help your classmates and your teachers. We have just a couple of minutes left. So I want to ask all of you and Sarah, if you're ready to go now, if you could decide how to best support mental health this year, what does that look like? I would say it looks like getting to the basics. Uh, so really being intentional about coming together to make sure that families have safety, security, food, and shelter, and understanding that this is part of education, this is part of mental health, um, it's the foundation for everything when we're thinking about children's well-being. Okay, minute to you, Roy. We need to be listening to our kids. We need to um, give answers when we have them and acknowledge when we don't make a commitment to finding answers um, for our students. And if we're working with families, doing that with our, our, our families, um, let's keep talking. Let's figure out what's working for whom and under what circumstances. And let's stop doing what's not working um, while we try to figure out how to do this better. Eric, what does support look like for you in Georgia? Everything my two colleagues, Sarah and Roy, just said, and creating an open two-way dialogue with youth and that is teachers and youth, that's parents and youth, leadership and youth, really hearing directly from them what they need. Because if we create safe spaces for them to be honest and open with what they're thinking and feeling, we as adults will do a much better job in getting their needs met. I'm so grateful to my panelists and guests here, uh, Dr. Erica Fenner-Sitkoff, Executive Director of Voices for Georgia's Children, Dr. Sarah Vinson, founder of Loria Psych Group. She teaches psychiatry and pediatrics at Morehouse. She's a board member of NAMI Georgia. And Dr. Roy Reese, psychologist and director of the Smart and Secure Children Parent Leadership Program at Morehouse School of Medicine. We whizzed around a lot. I tried to get a lot of questions in, so I really, really appreciate all of your agility. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was our panel discussion called Supporting Youth Mental Health, Our Georgia Schools Ready. You can hear the full conversation at gbb.org slash OST, along with a list of links to resources and data as we head into the back-to-school season. This broadcast was co-produced by GPB and Call to Mind from American Public Media. The event is part of Wellbeings, a national campaign with a focus on youth mental health, created by public media station WETA. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Our engineers are Jake Troyer and Jesse Nicewanger. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. Special thanks this week to Jade Abdul-Malik and Emily Hackshop at GPB. And to APM Technical Director Tom Campbell, Ellie Lyons for event support, and Content Manager Sam Chu, all from Call to Mind. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep talking. And thanks for joining us for On Second Thought. Mm-hmm.